So. Hey, Villa, how are you? Hey, guys, how are you? Was that uh, coconut milk or Red Bull? Uh, it was a uh, budget Red Bull, I'd say, from Lidl. <laughs> budget budget <laughs> Red Bull. Okay. Your well, gain I know where is your a energy levels high. are. Your gain is a, gain. <laughs> your gain is a little high, Villa. You're, you're distorting a little okay, bit. Okay, let me see. Once you say metaverse and and Web three etc., uh, everybody's interested anyway, right? Yeah, and no, I'm very happy to go align on um, opportunities, challenges for banking in the metaverse. I mean, the the kind of skeuomorphically throwing bank branches into virtual reality environments is an utter waste of everybody's time. I think that they're th th thinking about it in a way that isn't a bank branch or stadia or events and so on, which they can continue sponsorship and brand associations more sensible than saying that somebody wants to go and deposit a check in the metaverse. Okay, yeah, fine, excellent. I'm going to clap my hands, uh, get a reference point for editing, and then we'll get going. Yeah? You guys good? Good to go. Good to go, okay. Welcome to FinTech Daydreaming. the podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of fintech companies. We bring you real-life examples from global and local thought leaders, as well as experts working within the financial industry, and seek out the best stories from the front lines of financial services innovation, where dreams of industry pioneers meet reality. Hosted by Paul Krogdahl and Ville Sontu. This is Fintech Daydreaming. Guys, we're back. Season six of our fantastic podcast here, uh, Fintech Daydreaming. Fantastic to have you back. We've had a little break, Villa and I. We, we needed to, to relax, enjoy the uh, short summers here in Finland. Uh, it's been fantastically hot. Uh, I've been swimming. I've been to the beach. I know Villa has been to some real fantastically good places and done all of his hip and trendy uh, music stuff. But it's been it's been a great break. But now we are eager to get back to um, sharing with you some of the interesting things that are happening in the industry, some of the things that make Villa and I really exciting. And boy, have we got a season starter for you here this time. Um, we're going to dive straight into some uh, some cool stuff. I mean, everybody is talking about metaverse, Web3, cryptocurrencies, all of this mumbo jumbo stuff. And that's where we're going today. But before we get started on all of this, Villa, how are you? How has your summer been? I mean, it's been fantastic, like you said. I can't believe it's over. I mean, I guess technically it's not over because it's still August, but still, I mean, all the vacation period is over. Uh, so it's now hands down to work again. And I sigh very deeply when I say that because again, my summer was quite, quite good. Uh, as you mentioned, went to a couple of really fantastic music festivals. Not nothing more about those, but again, uh, I'm really looking forward to next summer already, uh, and I guess uh, some things in between perhaps as well. But for now, uh, it's back to the fantastic world of fintech and banking and all the good stuff. Uh, I also started in my new job, actually, which we mentioned at the end of last season, uh, and uh, I think if there's something we're going we're gonna to do with that, uh, maybe we're actually going to bring some elements of financial inclusion and emerging markets now uh, more into the podcast. I think it's a very important topic, part of the reason I actually switched my jobs uh, to begin with. So uh, again, we don't really have a plan on this, but I think uh, we will have new elements uh, in this season of the, of the podcast. So really looking forward to, to this one as well. 
and financial inclusion. You know that my heart is stuck on financial inclusion, financial literacy, um, digital literacy and everything else. So I think we're going to have some fantastic discussions around there now in uh, season six. But without any further ado, I'd, I'd like to bring in our guest here because, I mean, I have to be really honest. Um, one of the people that helped us in the early days on what's the technology, how to do all of this, and, and how do we even get the whole podcast off the ground was Anthony. And, and we've got Anthony Day with us here today, the, the fantastic uh, host and father of uh, Blockchain Won't Save the World, um, LinkedIn influencer from last year, an all-round good guy. So Anthony, Fantastic to have you here with us. I, I can't, we've been trying to get you onto this show for what feels like an eternity. I'm glad that you're here with us, kicking off this season. But for the one or two people that are stuck in a cave in Africa that have never seen daylight, maybe you'd like to share who is Anthony, where did you come from, and why are you so important in this world of blockchain and uh, metaverse and, and Web3? Well, thank you very much, guys. Appreciate that. Delighted to be here starting season six. I remember the early conversations we had when we were both working at IBM together mm. and uh, going through some of the kind of initial thinking around how to, how to get a podcast going, how to keep it interesting. And look at you guys, you've done six seasons. I've barely even wrapped up two. I don't know how you guys keep getting so much content. Maybe there's just so much more going on in banking and fintech than there is in Web3 and blockchain. So it's obviously the hot, hot place to be. So I, I appreciate the kind invitation and, and congrats to you guys for, for getting so much great content out across so many different platforms, YouTube and podcasting. And you look well. You guys look rested. You look tanned. That no one does summer like the Finns do, right? You get outside, you get in nature, you get some sunshine, you eat well, you bathe in the blood of your enemies. Whatever yeah. else it is, it's working. You guys look radiant. So uh, I'm very, you. very happy to be here. Um, Thank you. But <laughs> it's, it's all the vodka we drink. Or maybe I shouldn't say that. Is that it? Yeah. Is that it? Is, is it you put it on your skin or it goes just straight in? I know you, you just drink it and it then comes out through your skin, right? Through the pores. It's, it's perfect. <laughs> Beautiful. I must try that. So for those who don't know me, my name is Anthony Day. I've been a career consultant for the most part. And then in the last six years, I've been working in blockchain and Web3 technology with a, a range of organizations from Deloitte to IBM to Parity, a full mix of government blockchain and the sort of startup public blockchain ecosystems. On the side, I spend time podcasting. I spend a little bit of time on social media helping people who are as passionate or as curious about innovation and technology as I am to understand what is a relatively complex and complicated domain. Blockchain, unfortunately, hasn't been described and brought to the world in a particularly empathetic manner, but it is a hugely transformative technology. The broader sphere of Web3 is helping us to rewire or to reinvent some of the jobs that we've always been trying to do, to pay for stuff, to communicate, to identify ourselves, to trade, to transact, all of the stuff that as humans in society, we've always tried to do, but the current iteration of the web hasn't allowed us to do that, or it's morphed into something that somewhere along the way, the incentives or the structures just got a little bit mixed up and are less fair or less equitable or just don't work as well. So that's what I do and really excited to get into some I think, expansive topics on the world of Web3, the world of blockchain, and, and maybe even the metaverse. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's why we're here today. That's what we want to talk about. And, and it's, it's it has been a journey, right? It started with blockchain. It started very heavily in the technology. It was almost a hammer looking for a nail in, in almost every industry. We've 
had multiple episodes on this podcast around blockchain and Villa and I have had an awful lot of discussions around this all the way from cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin to, you know, public private uh, blockchains and where it's going and a lot around discussions of we're starting to almost get to the point where people are now focused in on what's the business problems we're trying to solve rather than, hey, look at this shiny new golden technology and what the hell can we do with it? But as we start to sort of merge away from that and, and blockchain almost becomes a, an underlying part of our discussions and take it for granted, up comes this big explosion of metaverse and, and Web3. And we could, we could debate as to whether that was driven by a marketing effort by Mark Zuckerberg or, or whatever else. But let's, you know, let's, let's try for once, because one of the things that Villa and I are very good at is to dive into the deep end right from the beginning and forget that we've got a curse of knowledge. So let's, let's fight this curse of knowledge for once. And, and maybe Anthony, you could help us and help the listeners to actually understand what the hell is metaverse and, and, and Web3 and, and where's it come from? Where's it going and who gives a shit? And before you answer, Anthony, uh, let me frame that discuss uh, that question a little bit. So, just in context, uh, during the summer, especially, we've heard many of uh, of the major influencers and investors in this space uh, completely fail in in describing what is Web three and what are the relevant use cases for it. There's been some very high uh, high level examples of of that kind of playing out now during the summer. So no pressure, Anthony, but uh, I'm, we're really looking forward to how, how you're gonna navigate through this question is how do you define Web3? And later we're gonna talk about the use cases, of course, but uh, let's start with the Web3 and maybe the metaverse connection to it. Sounds good, no pressure then. <laughs> so unfortunately, blockchain Web3, this particular domain of digital transformation has no shortage of shorthand descriptions for stuff that everybody misinterprets or that everybody interprets differently. Actually, I think there's no such thing as misinterpretation. It's that people try to be definitional with short phrases, and that's distinctly unhelpful. So using the term Web3 as a broad brush domain in the same way as you could look at banking or the way you could look at finance. Right? When you say the word finance, that could mean banking. That could mean capital markets. That could mean uh, the financing of business. That could mean trade finance. That could include or not include insurance. Right? That, that term to may mean something different to everybody, but once you start then defining what might sit inside that, you can help people understand the broad domain in which we're talking. So Web3 broadly is, I think the best description is, it's a sort of set of principles, architectural principles or design principles for how to create platforms. You could call it a web if you want to. It's, it's not a complete replacement for the internet in all its forms but it's a way of architecting technology and platforms that humans and machines can interact with, right? Still the internet, right? Still analogous to the internet. But in this case, some of the guiding principles are more around decentralization, use of open source technology, the ability to tokenize, financialize, and create micro payments that are low cost and borderless, and that are as much as possible privacy preserving. Right. So th those are characteristics of what a platform in Web3 might look like. Now, underneath that, what are some of the technologies, the brand name technologies that fit there? Blockchain as a, as a layer for both keeping records and automation. So automation of activity in machine-to-machine -machine transactions or in commerce is super important because if you have intermediaries in the way, if you have um, check steps or validations that require human intervention, those processes become slower. They become physically domiciled in a country and therefore uh, tax or legal jurisdiction becomes more complicated. 
Um, you have the concept of self-sovereign identity, the ability for individuals to manage their own identity, their own tokens, their own currencies. Right? And that, that's challenging in and of itself, right? Because if you can imagine that financial literacy is already low, the ability for you to self-custody and to be your own bank is even harder. The, the skill sets to work in Web2 and fintech and banking, you have to be financially literate. Maybe you have to be security literate. Maybe you have to be social media literate. Right? You add another layer on top of that with Web3 and with self-custody. So you're already adding a bunch of pressure to individuals to operate in this environment. And this is why I think a lot of people find it challenging is because it's not simply downloading an app with a logo on that you trust. It's using a series of tools that are yours to control that are open source and available for anybody to develop and, and edit on top of. And it's ultimately you're accountable. If it doesn't go well, you don't get to call customer service for the most part, right? If you send a transaction to the wrong address, that's your fault. You don't get, there's no take backsies on those sorts of things. Um, and so the principles and the requirements for operating on these sorts of platforms are harder, but the benefits coming out the other end are less exploitation of data more equitability, lower barriers to entry for people who want to participate in the system. If you want to send digital currency across the world, you download a wallet and you load it with some money and then off, off you go. Right? You don't have to go down to a branch, fill in 16 pieces of paper in triplicate and wait four days for your, for your card to arrive in the post. You know, in open source communities, it becomes an awful lot easier for people to contribute to projects to, and we might get into this, decentralized autonomous organizations, but let's call it communities where code is being developed, where ideas are being shaped, where money and funding is being allocated to things that the community like and that matter, right? That, that level of participation from a, an economic perspective, you know, the ability for anybody to get paid for contributing code, the ability for anybody to get a grant for work that they're doing for the community, whether that's technical or non-technical, lowering those barriers to entry and creating that global community, I think is super empowering and enables digital transformation to happen in a whole bunch of different spaces, verticals, industries, whatever you choose to call it. The fact is the last five, six years have been particularly hard. And Paul, I'm going to call you out for an intellectual shortcut on saying it was a hammer looking for a nail. Um, blockchain isn't a hammer. It's, it's a set of technology principles. It's a way of architecting platforms. The challenge is, is where we apply that transformation. The bigger the transformation, the harder it's going to be, the less at the grassroots level, people are going to understand it because it's the fundamentals of governance, of identity, of financial services, of capital markets. It takes some big brains to properly understand how that works today, let alone to understand how it works today and, and needs to be fixed. And so the, the empathy or the accessibility of blockchain as a domain or digital transformation using Web3 principles is already a little bit challenging. I don't know whether that was a short description I don't know whether it was a helpful description, but that's the best I've got right now, guys. How did I do? I think you did quite well. I, I don't think it is it is completely clear. Um, but like you said, I think this is still a, a journey of exploration, right? We're, we're still heading towards a perceived future. There's an awful lot of questions still to be answered. Things like, how do we deal with regulatory uh, elements? How do we even deal with, you know, consumer protection? Like you said, you're suddenly going into a world where people have to take a lot more accountability and responsibility of the actions and what they're doing. In doing so, you actually open up for the ability for people to be tricked, frauded, um, a lot easier as well. So there is, an, there, there is, you know, back to, to this world of 
we don't trust banks, we don't want banks, and we don't want the governments, and we don't trust them. So therefore, we're going to move into a utopian world where everybody looks after themselves and everybody's happy. Well, in reality, there are always going to be the bad guys. We're never going to get rid of the bad guys. The bad guys are just going to find new ways of taking advantage of good citizens and naive people. As you put more and more control into the hands of naive people, you also put a lot more control into the hands of the bad guys. If you then at the same time remove consumer protection, you move regulations, et cetera, et cetera, you're actually heading into what I would call a minefield of problems, right? So whilst I completely grasp what's happening around Web3, whilst I see this being a, a fundamental journey of the evolution of the internet, and the interconnectivity uh, of, of the world. You know, one of the elements that fits into this, you said machine, IoT, you know, connected devices, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I, yes, your, your definition was, was very good, um, but I think we still have a journey to go on. I don't know, Villa, if you've got anything to add to that. So a lot to unpack in, in what, how you described it, uh, Anthony, and uh, I, I'm really looking forward to deep diving, almost itching to deep dive in a couple of things you, you said there. But uh, in the spirit of trying to keep this uh, explainable, simple in the beginning and trying to resist the temptation to go to the deep end, uh, maybe we can uh, take it from the perspective of... Uh, uh, of, I'm a regular user of the internet and I'm using web too, I'm using social media and I'm doing everything I do every, uh, today we're doing uh, on the internet and on our mobile devices. What do you think is going to be the first thing that's going to be, everybody's going to be using uh, in, which has a web three element in it? Uh, again, it's probably not going to be cryptocurrencies or not, not even cross-border payments. Uh, it's going to be something else, I believe. And I think you're gonna go towards the community angle of this, uh, perhaps, because I think that's an interesting thing to talk about. But again, what, what do you think, what's gonna be the first practical thing uh, that a regular user that doesn't understand anything about blockchain will see uh, from Web3? That's a really interesting question. Where, where would I hedge my bets on what is going to be the first area of mass adoption? I think you've got a number of different domains that are promising. So identity management, could be one and it might and, and you've probably also got to look at the definition of blockchain public blockchain versus distributed ledgers because i think in a number of different parts of the world or a number of different systems that are operating in different jurisdictions there are already distributed ledgers underpinning a number of government public or private processes so you could argue that in some cases public administration in the uae for example is largely being run on systems that are architected in a distributed way is that mass adoption of blockchain probably not um, if you look at then more towards the extreme end of things where you've got self-custody, um, privacy and pseudonym, pseudonymous identities and so on, and, and your, your wallets managing what it, what it is that you do, you could see gaming being part of that. So you, know, you can see a million or you could see 100 million users adopting a game where part of the reward base or the loyalty base of the points underneath that, that is a cryptocurrency. Whether those users choose to, to, to trade that cryptocurrency for others, whether they want to go beyond that game and then use those digital assets to, to trade, to sell on exchanges, to you know, trade with other gamers, to, to swap for Bitcoin or Ethereum or Polkadot or anything else, that's their choice. And I think you're going to see an increasing um, dichotomy of platforms that are going to say, we'll, we'll hold your crypto for you. 
Right? We know that we want to issue you digital assets because we'd like those assets to move from one game to another, or we'd like them to be interoperable across a series of different experiences, whether that be metaverse, whether that be pure gaming, whether that be um, music and media. Right? We would like those assets to be recognized across multiple different platforms, not just within the house that is BMI, or not just in the house that is Virgin Media, or not just in the house that is Rockstar Games. We'd like to be able to create assets that move across places. And if you've got a billion gamers in the world today who are playing and identifying that, they get frustrated once they put all of their, their hard-earned cash and money and effort into one series of a game that ends after a period of time, and then you know the, the producer of that game switches it off, and then you start all over again. That's the commercialization model for those gaming companies, right? They create a title, it runs for a year period, you, you, know, you pump it as much as you can, then you drop it, and none of those assets come with you. Right. From a personal perspective, you know, I've played a lot of FIFA in my life. I've invested hours and hours in acquiring players and uh, trading and you know, being on the markets and you know, accruing this incredible team. And then it comes to the end of the series and you just feel like you've made it. You're playing with a team that you love and then it's gone. Right. I would love to go back to you know, FIFA Mobile 2017, 2016 and go back and play with the teams I had then because that was unreal. That was some of the most enjoyment I ever had gaming. And now I can't. The, the game isn't playable anymore. The servers are shut down. The, the market doesn't exist anymore. Right? Thing one. I think music is a contentious one. Um, ticketing could well be the case where you see digital wallets where authentic tickets are held. Those could be issued by individual um, entities. It could be issued by sports clubs. You know, Liverpool Football Club could have, or Newcastle Football Club, my favorite team, could issue their own tamper-proof tickets where you need to have a digital wallet, which has private key and a public key for, for trading and so on and so forth. And you can create specific experiences around that. That's not too complicated. That doesn't involve crypto too much. It does involve digital identity and verification. Um, and, and that might be a way of expanding it. You could see then for one team, a decentralized identity doesn't make a huge, huge amount of sense, but you could see that being league-wide. You could see that being countrywide. You could see that being at a World Cup tournament or a national tournament where you've got fans coming from multiple different countries who may want to create an equitable marketplace where tickets can be traded at face value, but then also recognized. We're also seeing today in Stadia, if people are going with tickets that aren't linked to them individually, if they bought it on the secondary market, they get refused entry. Right? That's no good. Nobody wins in that model. And, and the clubs and the organizations don't necessarily have to um, benefit financially from that either. We're not saying that when you transfer a ticket, um, that the, the club has to then get a 5% you know, markup on that. That's not fair and equitable either. But they just want to make sure that when tickets change hands, no one's getting screwed. And so you could see those kind of regular social activity use cases going a bit more. I still think decentralized finance has a huge potential. If you're getting 20% yield on crypto with stable coins or with a particular crypto, with limited risk or with an insurance proposition on top, should your coins go to zero, if you can make that accessible with good user experience, I think that could get to millions and millions of people very, very quickly. Um, shout out. I mean, this is, I'm a little biased on this one, but if you go to Revolut right now, I realize that might be a competitor to some of your previous establishments, Villa. But if you go to Revolut today, you can go and learn to earn where you follow, I think it's three to four hours worth of course content. And in exchange for that, you're going to get your first crypto. You're going to get $15 worth of DOT from Polkadot for going and doing that learn to earn experience. That's then now hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people with DOT in their wallet wanting to know what to do next. 
it's custodial, right? So they're not necessarily managing that. Revolut's managing it for them. But if there's an option then to export that to self-custody, that can be the on-ramp to millions of people engaging with, what do I do with this crypto? What can I do with that in the Polkadot ecosystem? Or Cardano or whatever, whatever or Algorand or anything that you choose to do next, there's, there's an easy on-ramp there. This is what I'm seeing today, right? Is it going to be metaverse? I think we're a little, a little, little lagging on the hype curve for metaverse to be the one that break, breaks it yet, because I think those primitives, those fundamentals of understanding how to manage wallets and crypto and digital assets and security and and all of the things that come with it and and the learning of the user experience of that, I think needs to come first before people are going to feel comfortable expanding that out into their daily lives, work life, um, voting, and so on and so forth. I think that feels a little bit further out. I feel like uh, we could use the rest of the hour just uh, unpicking what you just said there uh, or unpacking what you just said there. There's a lot of things uh, we, we should have more time to deep dive on. We could make an episode on each one of these. But I do want to bring a personal experience here. Uh, during this summer, I actually went to this one of these festivals and one of the uh, larger exchanges, the US exchanges, was sponsoring the festival. Uh, mm -hmm. And they were actually giving out NFTs uh, for people who loaded the wallet and did the KYC. And once you got the NFT, you were able to go to their booth and get a, get a ticket to this uh, special secret party, which was kind of on the, on the side of the of the event. And they had free drinks and everything there. It was fantastic. But uh, uh, attended but, exclusively by 20 to 30 year old males, I assume. Well, I, they, they were. Well, yeah, actually, the, the border, the, the threshold for actually getting the NFT and completing the KYC seemed to be a lot for a lot of people. And, and people I talked to uh, there in the party when they actually got the NFT, nobody understood it it's just a picture on my phone i don't get it so i think uh, well they are able to bring in people i mean of course the idea for them was to get people to load the wallet and then they can push marketing to them and all of that stuff get their first nft but it was not very clear to them what what is this picture on my phone that gives me access to this uh, special part of the part of the event so that was an interesting experience i still have the nft so let's see let's see what happens with it and, and again, um, nft but, sorting functionality is going to because that's become something that's critically important too because those wallets today you go should go through it's like going through every file on your computer system yeah. without any sort of filter or folder system right. i i feel you i think the i very, very deliberately didn't say nfts um <laughs> for a, a whole bunch of reasons i'm right the first one is nfts as a term in and of itself means something to everybody yeah and and some people assume that it relates to pictures of monkeys some people assume that it's relating to images of artwork. Some people have other views. The idea of creating digital assets that are represented as individual tokens in a wallet, that's the bit that people need to realize. The utility that you provide on top of that, it, it then enables the experience or the adoption, right? So in your case, it was a ticket, right? This NFT is just basically it's a digital ticket. So don't call it an NFT, call it a digital ticket. Yeah. Right? Why do I use this? Because it gains me access into this, into this event. If, if, if that's it, if I had to go through this whole new learning and adoption process just to get into this sausage party at the side of a festival, <laughs> I, I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. I don't care. That's not making anything better. Yeah. So, so think more carefully about the, well, what's the knock-on effect uh, or what's the future functionality of this thing that I'm going to get in my wallet? Is it going to allow me to vote on something? Is it going to be a ticket for a raffle? Is it going to represent something unique that if I combine it with other things, something good happens? And, and the, the business process underneath the reconciliation, the payments, the identification, the validation is, is a business benefit at the same time for whoever's issuing these things. That, that exact use case that you describe is the exact reason why I didn't 
say NFTs is going to be the million dollar use case. Yeah, and they by the way they did have a board ape or at least a guy dressed like a board ape as a DJ uh, in that in that part of the festival. So, but let's uh, let's leave it at that. Uh, mm -hmm. There's another part. Let's, of let's your... stay away from all of this NFT stuff, right? The, the no, focus should the, be another on NFT and metaverse. I did want to ask about uh, when you mentioned gaming as one of the first uh, practical use cases or so one of the things that probably might be hitting the mainstream first when it comes to Web3. Um, I agree. Uh, I think gaming obviously is a, is a big uh, space and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, people and money involved in, in that already. And uh, there's a, the story is quite good. Uh, you know, having these assets that you can move across games, having interoperability over protocol level uh, between these game worlds, uh, that's the way to connect these things. One thing always bothers me about these uh, game worlds and, and, and the related web three topics which is that what is the what is the incentive for the game developers to do anything in this space uh, they, they are at the moment if nothing else they're incentivized to keep people in their walled gardens um, they there's very little uh, for them to actually uh, push them towards this uh, towards this interoperability and then then on the other hand uh, on the receiving side let's say I'm able to move as, uh, assets from a game to uh, to another game I want to play what is the incentive for uh, for the for the recipient game to recognize any assets from from the other game because ultimately the assets themselves uh, that you move they're just basically hashes and codes so there's mm -hmm. there's no graphics or anything related to that so it's about the rendering of those assets on the on the receiving side that has to be implemented in the first place. So again, I'm looking for the incentive structures. So why would the game developers do this on both sides of that equation? So here's, here's an interesting analogy and I'll ask you, answer your question with a question. Uh, what was the incentive for banks to create, to follow behind open banking principles and open up their banking apps? Oh, I can tell you the answer that is regulation. <laughs> I know, right? That's That was the cop-out answer. I was looking for better than that from you, Willa. Um, and honestly speaking, right, there's, there's mandatory compliance with regulation. And then there was adoption and embracing of an open architecture and being able to connect your banking proposition with others. Maybe it's insurance, maybe it's other savings, maybe it's crowd crowdfunding propositions, et cetera, et cetera. Right. There are some banks that did the minimum and there are some banks that said, actually, we're stronger together or this becomes a more compelling proposition because there's more utility. There's we're offering services that we ourselves can't provide competitively or you know, we're giving more choice, more openness to the customer. Right? Do you see? Do you see? Did you like that? I brought banking example to a blockchain story. Um, <laughs> nice. I, I hadn't rehearsed that one either. But the and the point with gaming is that the existing kind of walled garden, standalone platform game developers do not have any incentive because their current commercial model is structured around that. In the same way that you know those organisations that aren't naturally inclined towards decentralization or whose business model is based around being an intermediary today won't love decentralization either, right? because it fundamentally rubs up against their existing raison d'etre. But for those, those who are developing these sorts of propositions, the reason why is the promise of what you can do next. Right? You're saying that we are going to change, change the paradigm. I've just said paradigm. You're going to change the model. right? You're going to say that this, this game doesn't end, or the assets, the investment that you make in this doesn't end, and therefore the promise of what comes next the other games who connect into those ecosystems will then be able to port over, right? Twitch, Twitch train style, all of the people leaving that game at the end of its life cycle into yours. And so if you're able to catch that user base as they come in at the end of a game cycle into something new and different, or even to expand into it, essentially you're making the pie bigger. Now your game has run its course and your tokenomics and 
how you monetize that you naturally account for that and it's it's not a rug pull either if you're transparent about it you're saying look we know this game cycle is going to have a year we expect the token's probably going to be worth nothing after 12 months but it's going to be worth a lot in six months and you can choose whether you want to stick around to the bitter end and we'll create some incentives for players to keep playing the game at the end but essentially it's that kind of continuous cycle of development and interoperability that i think is why developers will want to do that because it gives them more freedom it gives them more creative expression it also puts less pressure i think on how good if various editions of the game have to be because you can port your community out into different places. Um, I think there's also another part of this, which is with, for want of a better phrase, Web3 gaming propositions, the financialization of your time and effort is much, much easier to do. In fact, I think it's impossible to do unless you're monetizing it through content creation with those existing walled garden platforms, right? So you can't port those assets out of CSGO, or you can't port those out of FIFA today. You can monetize by playing FIFA and having people watch you on YouTube and Twitch, and you know your audience is interested in you, but you don't get any financial reward for the time you've invested in it. You can't sell and trade, for the most part, assets that you've spent time to create or that you've won through being great at the game or through grinding. That, to me, I think is another additional benefit to the community. And if people can see that, um, I think that becomes more attractive. The challenge for me is, should we? So let me play devil's advocate here for a second and just, just come with, you know, the stupid question from the side. What we're talking about is, is Web3 fundamentally is focused around ownership, right? It, it enables that merge from um, being able to contribute to actually be able to prove ownership. And we're talking about this now in, in mainly in, in gaming. Why do I need Web3 to do that? I mean, at the end of the day, if, if game houses agreed to the fact that your representation of value can be exported and imported into my representation of value, I could do that in Web2. Why do I need Web3? So, so we come back to the, the whole definition of what do we really mean by Web3? What do we mean by ownership? What is it that the general population of people are getting with web3 that they don't have today that's a, that's a really good point and to some extent you know the ability for v bucks to be accepted over different gaming environments or the ability for a consortium of gaming companies to come together and say we will allow in perpetuity these assets to be carried on it is technically feasible it may not be commercially viable for them because maintaining their private code bases in, in a way that it continues to be interoperable, continues to be backward compatible, is expensive for them. And their business model is not geared typically. And again, this is a gaming specific example, right? This is very nuanced. But in that particular model, they're not incentivized to keep games alive and to keep things going. Whereas if you have, and I, I, I'm going to drop Web3 as a terminology here, but if you have more of an open source um, kind of perpetual environment where assets, their metadata, and the ownership of those assets, and even some of the applications, right, exist on unstoppable servers in the cloud. The ability to then take those, fork them, build on them, and, um, develop them, even you know, bring certain games back years later, is more feasible to the open source community than it would be to big gaming houses that have higher overheads or whose source code is proprietary. Would be just one example. Okay, so I mean, we've we've spoken a lot about this from a gaming perspective. My mother does not play games. 
And, um, you know, most of the people that she spends her time with do not play games. So what's the value of Web3 to, to the non-gaming society? That's, that's a good one, Amsa. What What is the killer Web3 use case for senior citizens yeah. who, who already struggle with digitization to an extent? I mean, you could argue, I'm gonna, I'm, I don't wish to speak on behalf of your mother. I don't know her well. I haven't met her. I'm sure she's lovely. Um, but if you take senior citizens as a category, typically they will have assets. They will have pensions. They will have savings. They will even have um, property, for example, that today in current market conditions, they may be challenged to be getting access to uh, yield or a, a, an above inflation return on investment. Not saying that decentralized finance is necessarily a more efficient, better or more rewarding financial system than the existing banking system. Do your own research. This is not financial advice, but the ability to create um, financial products, derivatives, the ability for your mother to gain access to yield in different pools in different ways than just the traditional vanilla banking services or pension pots that she has today may be more creative when you take when you take a kind of open source blockchain decentralized finance approach. Not saying it's better. But I'm saying that if she were to say, I will put a proportion of my income in structured products, or if I want, wish to, um, with the support of the government, make part of my house available as a, as a mortgage in short term to then be able to invest in certain products or to be able to take out equity. If you've ever tried, and here's a, here's a recent example, right? At the moment, I, I'm remortgaging my house. I want to take equity release. In Ireland, I can't do that unless I'm, unless I'm building on the house. Right. That, that's something that is physically impossible. In order to equity release, I would have to sell my house to someone, buy it back, and then take out a mortgage for a different amount to be able to take 100K out of the value of my property. Right. There, is no, there is no structured product today that will allow me to do that because the Irish banking system is backwards and we're not going to get into that either. But there may be ways, different structures of different financial products that providing I could validate myself a certain amount of collateral, um, a proof of ownership, et cetera, et cetera, I might be able to release some equity against my property in a way that does not cost me 20% interest. Right? You can create efficient markets that are global in terms of their liquidity pools as well, which regulatorily approved opens up more opportunities, gives you more access to capital. So, so to take the terms from Villa here, we could really unpack that. And I think we could end up in a very interesting discussion here of what value Web3 is bringing. In the interest of time, I, I think it would be worth us just moving on from Web3 to the other buzzword that everybody's talking about, Metaverse, because I don't think mm. we've unpacked that enough to be able to explain what the hell is Metaverse, except for just some pipe dream of Mr. Zuckerberg. So, so what, what is the Metaverse and how does it relate to this Web3 stuff? I'm going to try and avoid being um, definitional and something that is so early in its shape and form. But again, I'm going to try and respond with some principles or some um, ideas around why this space has come to be. Essentially, I think the metaverse is a combination of different technologies working together to enable experiences for people and businesses that we can't do today or we are limited today by doing in a physical world. There are some things that it's very difficult to not do in the physical world, right? This is why there is very little catering and there aren't toilets in the metaverse, right? There are, there are other things that physical proximity just works better at. 
right? hugging people, listening to a rock concert. Right? But there are other um, elements that digitization, identity management, financialization or, or tokenization or assetization of things enables us to do not just in terms of crypto, but maybe in terms of our vote, in terms of our attention, in terms of um, bringing communities together, in terms of allowing people who are, from an accessibility perspective, um, you know, less able-bodied to contribute to an experience or to enjoy an experience virtually without bias, you know, without physical limitations. There are a bunch of different, again, everyday use cases that constructing a virtual environment to do those things in allows us to do things better. Again, that could be collaboration, that could be voting, that could be project management, that could be software development, right? that could be concerts and gaming, it could be um, a whole bunch of different things, where because we have a mix of virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, the creation of avatars, or digital representations of self, that we have a digital identity linked to our avatar or to those environments, that again, that identity can port or move between different environments and carry with it assets, experience, um, content, approvals, clout, right? All of these things. And, and these are these are speculations on my part at this point, because you know, thing one, I don't spend a lot of my time defining meta defining and designing metaverses. And thing two is if you think blockchain has had less time to develop its killer use cases, metaverses even less. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you one thing it's designed, it, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be a way for us to take the things that we've already created in the physical world, dump them into a virtual reality environment and say they're better. Right? And we all know the JP Morgan bank environment, uh, sort of banking decentraland experiences. I don't want to go to your bank branch in the real world. Why the hell would I want to go to it in the metaverse? Yeah. Right? And you know, thing two, why is it in a building? Yeah. In the real world, we have buildings because weather or because security, right? We need to lock stuff away so people don't steal it or we need to go indoors because it's Ireland and it rains all the time. When I'm in the metaverse, I don't have that problem. So why must we, why must we assume that everything must have a construct of the floor and a roof, hmm. right? Th these are spaces, these are places in which activity happens, in which um, individuals and machines can in interact for the betterment of whatever the outcome is that we're looking to achieve. Either it's more enjoyable, it's more efficient, it's more collaborative. Um, again, I'm talking in principles here because I still don't think that just because Mark Zuckerberg says that I'm going to turn up to this business meeting without legs and with an avatar, suddenly it becomes a better business meeting. I'm sure you guys have been on plenty of work WebExes where the experience was crap compared to getting everybody into a room with a whiteboard. Yeah. Right. Having a VR helmet on and a virtual whiteboard does not make that experience better. Oh, absolutely but not. VR headsets make me feel seasick the minute I put them on. So that's going to be, you know, if everything goes into the metaverse with VR headsets, I'm going to have a problem. But, but here's an interesting one just to add to that. Most of the discussions that we've had so far around metaverse and, and most of the examples and use cases and everything else that's being thrown at us is very much from a consumer-based perspective, from a retail-based perspective, from us as individuals, you know, oh, we're going to drop into the, uh, the metaverse and, and do our life in the metaverse. But I actually think from my personal perspective, the growth of metaverse will probably be more around the corporate space, around digital twins, around manufacturing, around you know, those areas where it's not actually you and me going to a rock concert or to our bank branch or, or going into a new shopping mall to buy a pair of sneakers or trainers. It's actually gonna be what happens in a, a industrial world 
more than anything else. I mean, do you agree? Do you disagree? Where do you think this is going? There's definitely there's definitely applications, and if you look at you know, okay, let's break it down to what are the digital capabilities that we're layering on top. If we talk about manufacturing or engineering or, or medicine and surgery and so on and so forth, the ability to combine sensors with, um, you know, implements and devices with uh, an interface device to a human, whether that's audible, visual device, whatever it might be. If I can, from hundreds of thousands of miles away, apply my physical expertise or my interpretational expertise on a particular problem at that point in time because I've been transported there or because I have more data to to, to be able to, you know, if, if you imagine trying to say, right, I've got a problem with my car engine and I'm going to try and explain this by whole, by, by listening on the phone to how the engine's performing, that's going to be, that's just, you're never going to get anything fixed. But if I can overlay temperature, airflow with, a, with visualization that a human can interpret or even a machine, can interpret and then to identify where particularly within that give a 3d representation of what's required be able to overlay then what is the part that's missing those capabilities together make that form of engineering more efficient um, you know ditto if you're in a manufacturing environment or if you're co-creating on architectural build of some sort um, the, the requirement there though is a mix of inputs outputs and user interface and to some extent, automation and machine interfaces, if you want that system to be fully autonomous, yeah. which gets even more interesting. Uh, yeah, so we, I, I, applications everywhere, right? Yes. Yeah. We, we talked about that, I think a few seasons ago, we had an episode about what we called Industry 4.0 or the fourth industrial revolution, which uh, incorporates a lot of these things we talked about. I think the, uh, the direct connection to the metaverse uh, has not been at least explicitly uh, said out loud uh, so far. So I think that's, a, that's an interesting point for sure. And one of the things we already talked about even in this episode is that uh, part of the reason uh, Web3 is a, is a term these days is that uh, it, it brings the element of financialization to everything and i think this this digital worlds uh these digital twins uh the uh, the way to uh, model uh the physical world in a digital way now you can bring financialization on top of that so you bring financial instruments payments measuring uh lending credit control uh into those processes and then you're still talking about something interesting but here's where i maybe differ a little bit uh, with the uh call them blockchain enthusiasts <laughs> which is that uh, we, we actually had a Chris Skinner, uh, Chris Skinner as a guest uh, just uh, last season here, and uh, he brought up the example of, of Second Life, which was kind of this virtual world and still is a virtual world uh, that resembles a lot about what, how, how Zuckerberg likes to talk about uh, the metaverse. And uh, they had the, their own economy in there, uh, as described in the episode quite clearly. And then ultimately it ended up that the, the regulators said that in order for you to be a bank or provide financial services in this second life you need a banking license uh, do you think that this is going to be the uh, case here in the broader uh, scope of metaverse as well are we going to have regulated institutions providing these financial services in this uh, world uh, or or maybe are we going to see emergence of some something else uh, down the line the short answer to that is yes because humans and i'll come back to that before i forget the other thing that i wanted to say because your your point around um you know the industrial revolution and, and kind of Web3, blockchain and metaverse in an industrial context is the other principles that apply on top of that is the gig economy yeah. or kind of the, op the open market for talent. And if, if you can imagine that you're creating open problems 
as you know, as an engineering institution, you have a particular diagnostic that you want to run a particular pipe somewhere. Rather than keeping an expensive engineer 365 days a year, you're able to say, right, we have a problem in this particular heat pump on this particular rig somewhere in the world. Here's all of the sensor data. Where's my whitelist of qualified engineers? Who wants to take this task on? Right. The ability to create to create micro-tasking, micro-payment, and then also kind of credentialization and reward recognition for expertise in those settings. Your engineers can come from anywhere in the world. They don't have to be flown on a helicopter to, well, you wouldn't fly a helicopter to Brazil, but you wouldn't have to fly them from Aberdeen to Brazil, get them out to the rig to then being able to figure it out in real time. There's a number of benefits of the, the working and employment model, the gigging model around that too. So there's some enablement there also. Um, on your, do we see regulated institutions? Absolutely for a number of reasons, right? In some cases, not every platform will, will say we're going to be domiciled as a, a decentralized autonomous organization and have no jurisdiction. So you know, where there are physical jurisdictions, where entities exist in places, there's regulation. Uh, I think also there's a number of roles for banks and financial institutions in this space for uh, custody management, for insurance of propositions where somebody as a human, maybe Paul's mother, maybe me, is going to say, you know what? I don't want to fully web through this. I, I trust that a bank is going to have some support for me while I'm doing this, or I don't want to have to manage another 10 tokens for this particular project. I'm just going to let somebody take this as a third party. I'm going to sign in with MetaMask. Or I'm going to sign in with my wallet. Maybe I'm just going to have a username and password. Someone else can manage my crypto for me. I'm okay with that. I don't think everybody is going to go full, not your keys, not your crypto on everything all the time. I think there's going to need to be a mix. We're sort of rather rapidly running out of time. This is a fantastic discussion and I could keep going. Maybe we need to grab some beers and sit down and keep the discussion going. But I'm going to leave with one last question to both of you. I've got my own perspective. I might put it in at the end. But when you listen to a lot of people talking about Web3, talking about Metaverse, talking about decentralized organizations like you were just talking about, there, there is a common underlying theme that's coming from them. And that is, you know, old industrial money is dead. We're not going to need fiat currencies anymore. We're not going to need the global financial infrastructure because Web3 and tokenomics will solve this. Personally, I don't believe that. I think we're always going to need the backbone of the global financial infrastructure and the global currencies. Uh, what's your view on this? First of all, I suppose we'll go to you, Anthony, as the, the metaverse guru. I'm a pragmatic optimist with every technology whether that be blockchain, AI, VR, open banking, take your pick. Right? So I always want to believe in the art of the possible and have an abundance mindset with everything. I believe that Web3 is just a credible alternative to other models. You can continue to be served by Facebook. You can continue to be served by your bank. You can continue to be served by whoever you choose in life. If Web3 is able to create a better, more compelling, more usable, more financially rewarding, more secure, more enjoyable experience than Web2, people will move there. Mm -hmm. They won't move there because of buzzwords. They won't move there because people hype it up. They won't move there because it's it's a terrible user experience and managing crypto is deeply scary to some people. Um, that's not the case. And I think we should avoid trying to do either or statements in any space of technology. Right? They will always be a middle ground. They will always be something of something, something of something else. There are still banks using COBOL right, as their underlying programming languages in some of their mainframes. Right. And that's been around for 50 years. So there is always going to be some remnants of technology somewhere. All we're really asking for is that whatever we build next 
solves a problem, makes things better and doesn't add risk. And I believe what I see today and what I see the potential of blockchain web three and those tools that people, developers, founders, banks, governments can apply those principles can make a lot of things better. And so that's my optimistic pragmatist um, speaking. Fantastic answer from a fantastic influencer, I would say. So yeah, very good. What about you, Villa? Well, I'm going to try to keep this short, but I think it's it's about when we discover new ways of interacting with, with each other, uh, there's always going to be a new way of also interacting with value. So for instance, we already know that whenever we invent a new way of payment or a new form of money, it's very, very if practically impossible to sunset any of those things. We, we still use checks. We still use cash uh, all around the world. And the reason is that there's always an audience that thinks that it's that actually is the best way to interact with value uh, between individuals. So, so it's these things are not going to go away. They might be smaller, but uh, they're going to be kind of hanging around. And when it comes to the way we pay, most of us pay every day today with commercial bank money. I think that it just works so well. I mean, in day-to-day -day lives, uh, everything is practically real time, at least here in, uh, in Northern Europe. Uh, and everything just works very low cost to no cost. Uh, again, no issues whatsoever. So I don't think commercial bank money will be replaced uh, anytime soon, if ever, uh, because it just works. Now, in context of the metaverse, it is digital environments. Of course, commercial bank money, cash, of course, they are not suitable for those environments. So I think the jury is still out uh, on how actually that is going to play out. Of course, private options with less regulation have the advantage of actually going there and doing stuff. Uh, without regulation. But as we move forward, we're going to see something more tangible, maybe connected to the existing financial infrastructure, uh, more secure as more people come in. So that's the way the regulators work. They always want to protect the uh, citizens and the consumers. So short answer, we're going to have different uh, forms of money uh, for different uh, environments. And I think uh, the jury is still out uh, for the metaverse. If it even uh, becomes a thing, we will see. Yeah, I think it's a thing. It's just a question of what does it become next and how and how well used and how well loved is it going to be? Absolutely. Well, like I said, we are rapidly running out of time, but um, we, we like to add a little bit of humor and lightheartedness to our episodes, Anthony. And, and we've been asking our guests to share with us their best um, industry related joke. So I'm wondering if, if maybe off the top of your head, you might have a good joke that you'd like to share with our listeners. That's a good one. Do I have any kind of banking and fintech related jokes off the top of my head? Um, I've, I've got I've got a blockchain and crypto related one. If you'll if you'll oh, allow thanks. me. Yes. Why is it that governments haven't embraced Bitcoin? Good question. Why is it? Because they don't believe in proof of work. <laughs> that, okay. one's a, that one's a deep one. <laughs> And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we call it the end of an episode. Hello to all our government worker listeners, by the way. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> we love you. Fantastic. Uh, Anthony, before we, we, uh, we close off, if our listeners would like to uh, get in touch with you, get to find out a little bit more, have a deep-rooted beer discussion around Metaverse, how do they find you? How do they reach you? Um, so very happy for anyone to reach out to me on LinkedIn. 
uh, do most of my engagement with the community. Most of the content I post is out there. So uh, just Google Anthony Day on LinkedIn. You'll find me there. Also, if you want to listen to any of the stuff that I do on the side, you can check out the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. It's not as good as Fintech Daydreaming, but if you listen to two podcasts, make mine the second one. And uh, we've got a whole bunch of different shows on there around the, the ev evolution of blockchain, a whole bunch of different countries around the world, um, from Japan to UAE, Block, blockchain in Brazil, Malta, Israel, Canada, Germany, Netherlands, stories from you know, 15, 20 different people all talking about the last five, six, seven, maybe 10 years in this space. So if you have a curiosity around the history of how we got here, uh, that show is maybe for you. I would, I would second that. Definitely check it out. Blockchain won't save the world. And maybe you see the, um, the funny reference we've made to the title of this episode as well. Will blockchain save? So, but with that, thank you very much, Anthony. Uh, thank you, dear listeners, for joining us back for season six. I mean, this is Villa and I are becoming quite old hacks at this, right? Um, we will keep going. We've got a whole load of fantastic guests lined up. Um, hope you've enjoyed this. If you have, then as always, hit the subscribe button, hit the notification button, leave us a comment. On most of the platforms, a comment is worth more than three likes. So we really want those comments. Please give it to us. And um, Villa and I will be back in two weeks' time with another episode, another guest, and another fantastically cool, interesting discussion. This has been Fintech Daydreaming. This is Fintech Daydreaming. <laughs>